Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be covering the book of Job. We're going to talk about the major themes, motifs in the book of Job, and try to get at the heart of the question, what is this book all about? That's the major debate that's been raging in Christianity for since forever. And people tend not to be able to make heads or tails of the book of Job. What is it actually trying to communicate to us? And so I'm going to try my hand at that today. We start the book of Job in the land of Uz, and we're introduced to the titular character right away. His name is Job, and it describes him as a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and turns away from evil. That's the ESV. The word for blameless is perfect, actually. So the story is setting up Job as someone who is, uh, there's there's nothing wrong with him. There's, there's no reason why he deserves the things that are to befall him. There's Calvinists out there who say every single human being is worthy of death, and it's just by God's mercy, he doesn't kill all of us, and we all deserve it. Well, no, this whole story, the entire premise is that there's an individual who gets what he does not deserve. He doesn't deserve death. He doesn't deserve punishment. Everything that he receives, he receives unjustly, and that is the entirely explicit point of the book, and that's what this prologue is setting up, that we understand when these things are happening that nothing that he gets, he deserves. He is perfect, he's blameless, he's upright. That's the basic premise of this story. So you can't just assume something else on top of that. You can't just bring in your priors. Oh, all men are sinful, and so he must have some hidden sin. Remember, that's what his friends later try to argue, but we'll talk about their views later. And God calls them out. He condemns all of Job's friends. And Job's friends have this view that, Job's being punished for some sort of hidden sin, that Job's concealing some sort of sin. There's maybe even some sins that Job doesn't know about that he's being punished for, or he's being punished in case he might sin in the future. All these ideas are floated by Job's friends, and all of them are false. Job's friends are condemned. But Job's a righteous man, and he's a very prosperous, and, and he's very well blessed. He's very rich. He's got a lot of kids. He prays for his kids. He sacrifices for his kids. And he's just, he's, he just worships Yahweh. Later in the text, he says, I've served God from my youth. I've, I've done everything I can to serve Yahweh. And then he's wondering why the things are befalling him, which are befalling him. But in heaven, in heaven, before anything starts happening, we get a behind-the-scenes look at what's going on. We are introduced to the divine council. This is a place in, in heaven, in, in the spiritual realm, in which God sits on the throne and the angels surround him. And so God's on the throne. You get the vision in Daniel that I saw Yahweh on his throne, surrounded by a heavenly host in Revelation as well. And First Kings 22, there's a courtroom scene in which God queries the angels and the angels step forward one by one to offer um, offer ideas to kill the evil king Ahab. But here is just a general assembly of angels, and the angels seem to be coming to God to report to them on their whereabouts. And there's a certain angel that steps forward who is the Satan, the Satan, as it reads in the ESV. Now, there's pretty good reason to think that this is not a proper noun. This is not a name of someone. This is not the devil. We're not thinking uh, pitchfork and horns and, and just this really evil guy who wants to fight Jesus in the desert. 
you know, it's not this devil character which we're being introduced to here. It's actually not a proper noun. It's the Satan or the accuser. This is a role in the court of God. It's, a, it's an angel who's been specifically delegated to apparently go around the earth and test human beings to see where their loyalties lay and to uncover hidden unrighteousness. And this Satan, he comes before God and God interjects to him and he says, Have you considered my servant Job? Have you tested Job? Have you looked at him? God is holding Job up as a standard of righteousness. There's no one better. And he's, he's showing off his prized possession to the Satan. And the Satan has no power over him. The Satan wasn't able to uncover hidden sins in Job. And so the Satan offers a, a challenge to this. And he says, does Job fear God for no reason? He's saying, you know, maybe Job is not worshiping you for the sake of worshiping you. Maybe it's this quid pro quo type of thing. Uh, you're giving him a lot of money, and so he's just a mercenary. And he, he just cares about money. He doesn't care about you. And uh, he figured out that serving you, God, is what's giving him all his money. So that's why he's doing that. And so there's a legitimate question. Uh, what, which follows which? Does God's blessings, are they what inspire loyalty to God? Or are, is the loyalty which inspires the blessings? Which one came first? It's, it's a legitimate question. And God himself does not know the answer. God doesn't know. Now I'm going to be quoting David Klein's at length because I think this is very relevant to the book of Job and explains a lot what's going on here. According to Satan, God must be thinking that Job does fear him gratuitously, that the piety of Job therefore is unmotivated and is the origin of his prosperity. The Satan's own suspicion is that it is the other way around, that is Job's prosperity that is the origin of his piety. That is only in order to become prosperous or remain prosperous that Job is so exceptionally pious. When the point is put to him, God has to admit that he does not know the difference. He has been assuming all along, as do most humans, that the principle of retribution runs from deed to result and not from result to motivation. God, therefore, has to allow an experiment to be carried out on Job to discover whether the dogma of retribution to which he has been given his assent is true. So this is a necessary test, and it's only a test for Job because God does not know whether or not human beings worship him for being him. He doesn't know if they're only motivated by greed rather than some sort of uh, piety. And this is a test that needs to be carried out to figure out causation. You don't know the, which way, one is the cause and which one's the effect. And so in, for this reason, this, this test has to be ran. To solve this question once for, for all, can people serve God without self-motivation? The difficulty is that neither God nor Satan knows which came first, the chicken or the egg. The piety or prosperity, there is no doubt because when the principle of retribution is functioning properly, the pious are the same as the prosperous, and so you can never separate cause and effect. We readers who have preserved to chapter 42, of course, know by now what we think of the principle of retribution, but the God of chapter 1 has never engaged in deconstructions, dwelling as he does in an informal and somewhat rustic court. 
where there are none of the typical oriental courtesies, but plenty of blunt speech, and no divine omniscience, but only a willingness to find out, whether by report or by experiment. Experiment, that is the word. Job's sufferings will be not a wager, for Satan has nothing to win or lose by the outcome, but an experiment in causality. It is a simple matter to prove whether the piety hangs on the prosperity, remove the prosperity, and see if the piety falls. The experiment has to be done, not only for the sake of the truth, but even more for the sake of God's well-being. How could God ever look at himself in the face if it was to turn out that none of his creatures, not even the most God-fearing man of all, loves him for his own sake, but only for what they could get out of him? Still in chapter 1, this is a test that Satan says. He says, Have you not put a hedge around him and his house for all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hand. His possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord is Yahweh, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh. The first test in chapter 1 is Satan taking away all the property of Job, just destroying everything. And there's a series of messengers that approach Job from the north, east, west, and south. So there's, there's four directions, and it's a combination of natural elements and uh, human activity. And so he's, he's being assaulted from all angles, and everything that can go wrong does go wrong. And just the perfect concophony of catastrophe, I would say, befalls him. So much so that he can't come to the conclusion that this is all a coincidence. What's happening? Everything in the world has turned against him. Nature, a man, uh, taking away his food, his clothing, his wealth, his children. Just everything is gone in this. And Job mourns, and uh, he, he mourns all of this. But he doesn't sin. He doesn't uh, curse God. And he says this, Naked I've come from my mother's womb, which is the earth. Uh, for we, we've come from the earth. We were made from dirt. Naked I've come from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is not very satisfactory to the Satan. And God says, yeah, look, uh, he's, he's passed the test. He's good to go. And Satan answers Yahweh, he says, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. Satan then goes out and he flicks Job with all sorts of sores and boils, and Job is in pain and misery. And Job's wife comes to him and says, do you still hold fast in your integrity, curse God and die. The Hebrew doesn't use the word curse. It says bless God because I don't think the scribes want to write curse God. And so they do this thing where they they put like bless instead of curse just to be more pious. So curse God is the correct translation. He says the same thing he does in the first text in which he says, uh, we receive good from God, shall we not receive evil? Then three friends approach Job, and this ends the narrative portion of this text. And it breaks into this long poetry in which all these friends and Job have this back and forth conversation. Three friends, and then we have one interloper, a guy who injects himself into the text, just appears out of nowhere. 
And this is Elihu, who some people believe was just inserted into the text after the fact as a fourth friend that's never mentioned and fades away right after he talks. Summarizing the positions of Job's three friends, first of all, there's Eliphaz. Eliphaz is one of the more friendly of the friends. They, they go in this order where the friendlier ones speak first and the ones with the deeper accusations go later. So they're, they're ranked. Just kind of rank them in your mind like that. Eliphaz takes the position that Job is being punished for some hidden or non-systematic sin, that Job is uh, really one of the righteous, and this is a temporary setback. And uh, he, he says that justice ultimately prevails. All these people have this idea that retributive justice is a characteristic of the world. And retributive justice is the idea that the wicked are punished and, and the righteous prosper, that people get what they deserve in the here and now. And retributive justice is a reoccurring theme throughout the Bible. We see it in the Psalms. We see it in uh, Jeremiah. We see it in Habakkuk. It's uh, why, why do the wicked prosper, Lord? And they call on God. Why do you hide your face, Lord? Come and right these wrongs. Look at the state of the world. And they accuse God and they say, God, you need to use your power and bring justice to the world. And all of the apocalyptic texts talk about that, this, this restored world in which justice once again will prevail, because all of them are under the impression that the current world is fallen and justice has been subverted. The wicked are prospering. And Job talks about this too in his speeches. He accuses God. He says, why do these wicked people, why do they live so long? They, they die instantly. They die without pain. And their kids grow up rich and happy too. Lord, justice is being subverted on earth and it turns into accusations against God. Job has a lot of growing, a lot, a lot more growing than his friends. His friends hold on to their positions. It doesn't seem like they budge from their positions. Whereas Job goes through these various stages where it's pain, misery, accusations against God, a defiance. He, he, he runs this gamut of emotions, and he really grows as a character through the text. And that's the one of the great things about this, this book of Job, is you see his development through his speeches, his different stages of grief. So Bildad is the next individual to start speaking, and he takes a stance that Job may or may not be wicked. Job's children were wicked, and that's an evident by their deaths, remember, if, if you're a bad person, then bad things happen to you. Retributive justice. All three of these friends think that God meticulously controls the world in such a way that people get justice. Justice is a facet of the universe. And it's not the case. And Job argues that this is not the case. He says, Job has sinned, but may have not committed a sin worthy of death. I'm reading my own writing, so if it sounds like I'm reading. Bildad says to commit Job's case to God. So Bildad says, uh, call on God and uh, let him know what you're saying or what you believe, and he will make this right. God ultimately gives justice to the world. And so put your faith in him. And Job, he criticizes God. He says that, you know, God... No one can subvert God. He says, no one can tell him he's wrong. He says, but I'm going to do so anyways. I'm going to tell God that he is wrong, that I am right. And even if he smites me, even if he kills me, because no one can stand up against him, 
and no one could make their case against him and stand. God is unaccountable. There's no one to bring him to account. He says, if I die, my blood will be on the ground and the ground will, will speak up for me. And so he is steadfast in his integrity that he's done nothing wrong. And he has done nothing wrong too. And he is defiant and he's holding fast to his integrity. And, and that's one thing that I think we should all note about this, that his defiance and it was his integrity. He's not going to admit to a sin that doesn't exist just because it might be the expedient thing to do, just because he thinks maybe he might get out of some sort of punishment. He says, I am righteous, I've done nothing wrong, and I will die even if I bring my case to God and he neglects me and he smites me because those are the things God does. Uh, the ground will scream up and cry out in, for my sake. He's going to hold fast to his integrity against all odds, against even his creator if need be. And so I, th I think that that's, that's commendable. I do. I th it shows great integrity on his part. And the story validates his, his thoughts that he is not deserving of anything that's happening to him. He is a quote-unquote perfect individual in this case. And his integrity is right and true. Zophar is the next friend, and of course, Zophar is the most harsh of the friends. And he says, oh, Job, you have all sorts of uh, hidden wickedness and all this, this punishment. That's the evidence. And uh, you, you, we don't know your sin. We don't know what it is. But the evidence that you have those sins is that you are being punishment. You are getting your just due. And you're, you're Job, and you're sitting there. You know there's nothing, no skeletons in your closet. There is nothing you've done. That, that has been a violation of integrity, of charity. You have gone out of your way your entire life to serve God and be righteous. And Job's righteousness is talked throughout the Bible. Just do a text search on Job. It's all positive references, the righteousness of Job. And so Job's a righteous individual. And his friend is just treating him like he's a hidden criminal. Lastly, let's talk about Elihu. And Elihu is a point of contention among Christians. Some Christians think that this guy is a great friend who, who's, who's speaking truth and not acting as a foil to God. I think a foil is the better take of who Elihu is. His, his speech comes uh, very close to God's speech and sets up a stark contrast. And what a foil is, if you're not familiar with the term, like let's take Sherlock Holmes. He has a foil who's Watson. Watson isn't as smart as Sherlock Holmes which when they're compared side by side, Sherlock Holmes looks a lot smarter. You put two characters with divergent uh, traits next to each other, and the contrast is just, just heightened. And so Elihu is acting as a foil. This is John Franklin Agenung who writes this, The friends, however, have exhausted their resources, and through three discourses have been silent as it were, snuffed out of existence. It is at this point then that Elihu is introduced to renew their contention with the young constructive blood and represent their cause, as he deems, better than they can. He essentially at one with them in condemning Job. His only quarrel with them is on the score of inconclusiveness of their arguments. His self-portrayal is conceived in a decided spirit of satire on the part of the writer, not unmingled with sardonic humor. He's very egotistic, very sure of his values and ideas, 
Much of his alleged prolixity is due to that voluble self-depreciation which betrays an inordinate opinion of oneself. This guy's full of himself, Elihu. Very evidently, however, his ego is the, at the center of his system. It is he who sets up jo as Job's mediator. And his sage remarks on God's power and wisdom in nature are full of self-importance. All of this seems d designed to accentuate the almost ludicrous humiliation of his collapse when from a natural phenomenon the oncoming tempest shows unusual and supernatural signs. His words become disjointed and incoherent and cease with a kind of attempt to recant his pretensions. And the verdict from the whirlwind is, Darkness counseled by words without knowledge. Elihu thus has a real function in the story, as honorable as overweening self-confidence is apt to be. Now, in my blog, Reality is Not Optional, I, I go over Elihu's speech, um, and I, I try to pull out all the main points about Elihu's speech, because Christians do tend to revere Elihu as someone who knows what he's talking about. I don't think that's the case. You, you go over his arguments, and they're the exact same arguments of his friends. And remember, his friends are condemned by God uh, for speaking what's not true about God, and he's just rehashing their arguments. Elihu is not a sound voice in this. It's also funny when people quote Elihu as an authority on God, like when they're actually literally doing their proof texts. I think we highlighted one by James Duesel, where he quoted Elihu. Elihu, he's quoting Elihu. Uh, if you're going to try to talk about God's nature and character and digging up proof texts, don't be quoting Job and Job's friends. Job, maybe, because God says that Job did speak what was right about God. And we have to be very careful to understand what it is that Job was speaking which was right. And, and what, what's wrong and what's right in Job's speech. So you gotta you have to use a little bit of... Uh, uh, detective work to figure out what the correct speech was about God, that God does commend. But all of Job's friends, they're all condemned. You, you don't quote them. Don't quote them for anything. So here's my end conclusion about Elihu. Elihu has a few valid points, but also rehashes many falsehoods from his three false witness friends. Elihu is correct in magnifying God, criticizing Job for magnifying himself, and also correct in that God does not owe a response to Job. Elihu is wrong that Job is wicked, that God is punishing Job, and that all visible good and evil are judgments from the hand of God. That, that's the, the part of the point of the book, is that not everything that happens has a purpose. Not everything is retributive justice. Retributive justice is not a feature of this world that, in which we live. So from here, after Elihu's speech, there's a whirlwind that appears to Job. Job has, time and time again, called out to God to to give him his day in court so he could stand before God and try his case. And even if God smites him in his place, he will still be correct in his own mind, his own understanding. He will hold fast into his integrity. But God appears. And we're going to play a short little clip from the Bible Project, which summarizes very elegantly what this uh, appearance is actually. Job demands that God come and explain himself in person, and God does so. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation with the Satan. Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. 
He shows Job how grand the world is, and he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it just for a day. He shows Job how much detail there is in the world, things that we might see every day but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see. Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts and brags about how great they are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil. They're actually a part of his good world. And then that's it. That's God's whole defense. It's kind of weird. I mean, what was this all about? So what do we make of Yahweh's speech to Job? Job doesn't capitulate after the first speech. And David Kleins writes this, The second speech of Yahweh contains two unequal and unlike parts. The first is frankly unattractive baiting of Job, a sarcastic challenge to him to dress up like a god and act like the kind of god he expects the universal ruler to be, executing absolute authority and sweeping away the wicked from the world. There is an edge in this reproof of Job that we did not hear in the first speech, almost a bitterness. Yahweh is needled, as well he might be, at Job's unambiguous and reiterated charges that he does not know how to do his job. It has not helped matters after the first divine speech Job has not capitulated. Yahweh cannot forbear from saying to Job, well, let's you see you do better. He does not mean, as Berner thinks, that it would be too difficult even for him to carry out the kind of program of extermination of the wicked that Job has in mind, but rather that Job has no idea what he's asking. So Yahweh's response to Job is, you don't know what you're talking about. You, you don't, you're not coming from the position where you understand what's at stake, the, the different details in the world. I just took you on this world tour of the universe. I've showed you all these divine workings. You don't have the knowledge set to be able to challenge me. Uh, this, this is a legal presence. He's saying you don't have the legal standing to bring these accusations on me. You can't do any better. You, you can't offer me something that's better than the way things are being handled. You, you don't have the insight into the cosmos like I do. Here's another interesting quote from David Klein's in the same paper. From a more intellectual point of view, we might say that divine speeches have refused the categories of dialogues, and in particular the complaints of Job that the world is not being governed with justice. What they have left in its, their place is the suggestion that God does not put himself forward as the governor, that his acts towards his creation are not to be judged on the scales of justice. God is not governor of the world. God's not, in the words of N.T. Wright, the global CEO. Here's N.T. Wright. Part of our trouble is that in the Western world, we've assumed that God is, as it were, the celestial CEO of this thing called the universe incorporated. And then, as one Woody Allen character says, I sort of believe in God, but it looks like he's basically an underachiever. In other words, he's not very good CEO. He's not very good at running this show. But actually, the world is much more complicated than that. It's not simply a machine or a business with God as the CEO. God is involved in it in ways in which it's hard for us now, particularly in the modern world, to grasp. When we read the stories of Jesus and see what's going on in those stories, perhaps we need to rethink the meaning of the word God around who we see in Jesus. 
then all sorts of things become clearer and into sharper focus. It's not simply a matter of, has God blundered? Has he got it wrong? But no, he's been in the middle of all this mess with us, and he's taken the worst the world can do unto himself. He has launched his project of new creation. That's what the story of Jesus is all about. This is N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright's not talking about the book of Job. He's talking about the Bible in particular. But we see the same themes that are in Job as are in this N.T. Wright quote. God's not the global governor of the world. God's not micromanaging everything. There's a very complex creation that uh, God's not the global CEO of. Yes, he's powerful and he's involved in creation in ways that we do not know. But creation's complicated. And it's not that everything's always going to be micromanaged by God. Justice is not going to be distributed on on a very expedited basis. There's other things in this world going on. It's a complicated universe. And sometimes things just happen. Sometimes people are hurt. God, it's not, God's not incumbent on God to make everything right. And Job doesn't have legal standing to bring these accusations against God because he's, he's, just, not, he's just not on the same level in order to do that. One last Klein's quote uh, before the end of the podcast. There's a paper that he wrote called Seven Interesting Things About the Epilogue of Job. And in the epilogue, God says that Job has spoken what is right of God. And the friends have spoken what is wrong. So what were the friends saying and what did Job say? The friends were saying that God controls everything, justice is distributed, people who are suffering deserve that suffering that the world is operated on the principles of retributive justice. And Kleins writes this, The only thing about Job's speeches that Yahweh can be approving of is Job's denial that Yahweh governs the world on the principle of retributive justice. For Job, it was a criticism of Yahweh that he did not keep days of assize, judgment days, when he would mete out punishment to the wrongdoers. For Yahweh, the whole of his speeches from the tempest implicitly deny that retribution for good and bad behavior is a feature of the design of the world order. Yahweh's own depiction of his purpose for the universe emphasizes sustenance of its life forms, the non-human creation being a very prominent part of his concerns, rather than a micromanagement of human beings. Job's complaints about God's failure to manage the universe have paradoxically put their finger upon the fundamental truth about Yahweh, that such is not his interest. So that's a funny, Job's criticism, Job was criticizing God. God, you don't do this. God, the the wicked prosper. God, the righteous suffer. You don't implement justice on earth. And paradoxically, Job's criticisms were accurate criticisms. God says, yeah, yeah, that's true. What you're saying is an accurate criticism. I understand you're mad about it. But it's not the case that, that that's a feature of this world. You're, you're just going to have to live with it. There's other things going on in this world beyond your concerns. We reach the conclusion of Job. Job 42, we end the poetry and we enter back into the narrative. And the first part of this is Job's confession and repentance. And David Kleins points out that this repentance is not, he's not repenting because he, he sinned or did anything wrong. This repentance is a withdrawal of his lawsuit against God, a withdrawal of his challenges against God. He has nothing actually to repent of. He has no sins to repent of, but he is withdrawing his case. He has been 
shown up. He's been uh, shown the spectacular wonders of the universe and now has to humbly withdraw from God. God shows anger, and the anger is not at Job. It's at Job's friends, and God's going to kill these guys. Uh, they, they have so angered him. All their accusations against Job, all their accusations against God. Oh, God's been torturing you because you have some sort of hidden sin. That's not good stuff. So God's going to kill the friends. And he allows Job to intercede on behalf of the friends. And the friends, I don't know what their disposition is at this point. If they were watchers of this interchange between God and Job, but they probably aren't feeling very good to be refuted. And then an angry God is after them wanting their blood. And Job, the person they've been accused, accusing this entire time, uh, he has to intercede on their behalf so that God doesn't kill him. So another undermining element in this story is at the end of Job, Job is rewarded for all that he's gone through. Remember, the point of the test was to see if people could serve God without reward. That The problem seems to be solved. But then at the end of Job, he is rewarded with multiple times what he lost in the first place. More, more children, although we don't know how you could replace a child, you know. If one of my children dies, having two other children isn't quite like a replacement. It's not, it doesn't quite work like that. But he's given, let's see, 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a bunch of oxen, and female donkeys. And uh, so all sorts of riches and wealth flow to him because he is God's righteous person who God loves and wants to bless. And he does deserve his blessings from God, and God wants to bless him. That's what God wants to do. But he did need to solve this age-old question of what came first, the chicken or the egg, in the case of righteousness and blessings, retributive justice. So in summary, the book of Job, first of all, the entire test is around the concept of can people serve God without reward? And the purpose of the book of Job to teach us about God's justice and the way God handles the world is that retributive justice is not an, an attribute of the world. God has no claim that to be the person who's implementing a micromanagement justice over all the world. He's not, he's not uh, hurting petty criminals as they commit their crimes or he's not intervening and meticulously in all the events going on though the universe is a complicated and interesting place and a lot of things flow out naturally things are allowed to happen and we see that within the old testament how god operates how god punishes it's it's pretty much in this reactive sense that and sometimes the punishment is, is delayed by years and years and years and then the punishment comes or God bears with people's sin for a long time and then punishes them. It's a reactive thing. It's not, it's not proactive. It's not micromanaging, making sure no one commits a murder anywhere. It waits. God waits till the murder happens, and then he corrects these things after the fact. Uh, David murders Uriah the Hittite. God punishes him afterwards. It's this reactive punishment that sometimes doesn't even happen. And God lays no claim. He, he makes no claim to be the global CEO responsible for judging all wickedness on earth always. That's an improper concept that we try to impose on God. So people say, why is there evil in the world? If God was good, he would stop all evil and suffering. Really? Why? Why would he do that? 
does he make any claims to be this person who wants to micromanage everything in our lives to make sure that let's say you have kids you're the person you're going to follow around your kid 24 7 and make sure they never do anything they're about to hit a friend you stop their hand mid-swing is that what you're going to do follow them around their whole life and do that or are you going to give some leeway is it your responsibility to do that you have the power to follow your kid around for your kid's entire life you have that power in America, we're rich enough to do it. So you have the power to do that. Um, is First of all, is that a good thing? And then uh, is that your responsibility? If you have the power to do it, is it your responsibility to micromanage your kid's life to make sure they never do anything bad? God doesn't claim to be the global CEO. That's the point of the book of Job. Retributive justice is not a facet of this world. Now, when my oldest son first got cancer, I, I sat down with him and we went over the book of Job. We went over why do bad things happen? And I talked to him about retributive justice. And, you know, how much, how much of that sticks in like a six-year-old kid's head? Not too much. I have to keep refreshing his memory from time to time. But it, it's it's a thing. Like, does, does he think his cancer is from God? And he says, no, my cancer is not from God. Some people will say that, that everything that happens in this world is by God's decree, that God is making everything happen. Everything has a purpose. God's trying to do every, make everything into this grand plan. No, there, there's a general sense where God is working all things for the benefit of those who, who love him and serve him, but that's the end result. That's not saying that God's meticulously planning all events on earth always. God just doesn't operate like that in the Bible. So I hope you like this podcast. If you have any questions or comments, send that to GodIsOpenQuestions at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.